How's everybody tonight? Good. Good evening. Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group. To prepare for the Big Book Study, let's get focused and have a moment of meditation followed by the fog light prayer in a couple moments. Good evening, everyone. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Chris. Hey, Chris. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Mike Chase. Thanks for joining us tonight. We're going to start the meditation in a minute, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or will distract others for the duration of this here meeting. The coffee area is in the back. Don't make too much of a distraction if you go get refills, please. And the donuts. Let's get rid of all them things. Donut out tonight, please. Also, also, if you could, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. For meditation, some suggestions are focus on your breath. Feel it going through your nose. Just let it sit in your lungs for a moment or two and then let it out with a... Do that consistently and as, uh, as well as you can and you will be so relaxed by the end of the meeting, you'll love it. Take this time to get reconnected to God. Let the craziness of that day just drift away. So the lights are going to go off. The monks are coming in to start the meditation. Uh, sit back and enjoy your time with God. We'll see you guys in three minutes if everybody's ready. I think we're ready. Enjoy.
going to start off with the me version of the Fog Light Prayer. If you're ready, God, God, let, let your, your love shine, shine through me like, like a fog light, light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. So we got our secretary tonight. Tanisha is off doing motherly type stuff, so we got Ryan to fill in for her. Hello, Ryan. Hi, my name is Ryan. I'm a recovered alcoholic secretary. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hi. Uh, in keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. Um, and I've asked Doug to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Thank you. Let's bring it up for Doug. I am Doug. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for a lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem that the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. And really tried. 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. This, the statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Um, in the back, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. Um, we also, if I know people don't carry cash that much anymore, so we do take cards if you, if you want to pay that way. Uh, and same for the uh, voluntary contributions, feel free. Um, we meet every Monday promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the Road to Recovery tune. See you next week. Thank you very much. From the forward to the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book and of this group. From there's a solution, also from the big book. The tremendous fact for every one of us that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out which we can absolutely agree upon and upon which we can join a brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. This is an open meeting, and as such, all who have an interest in alcoholism in our program of recovery are welcome. Because this is an open meeting, you need not identify yourself nor your reason for being here. If you do not wish to do so, your anonymity will be protected. We ask that you protect ours. And on anonymity, um, the meeting is podcast. So if you've never been here before, we pass the microphone around eventually. And if you don't want your voice recorded, put out on the Internet for a lot of people to hear, feel free to pass the mic to somebody next to you or just disguise it creatively. <laughs> sounds fun. Can we have a show of hands of people joining us at this meeting for the first time? Anybody here for the never first time? Never been here before. Cool. What is your names and where are you from real quick? Let's applaud at the end. Um, Andy Alcoholic, Deerfield. Hey, Dandy. Hey, DJ Alcoholic. Hey, DJ. Hey, DJ. Hey, Doug Alcoholic, Deerfield, Hey, Doug. Cameron Alcoholic, Ohio. Hey, Cameron. Ryan Alcoholic, New Jersey. Hey, Ryan. Tom Alcoholic, Hey, Tom. Wow, the whole country is here. Cool. Welcome, you guys. <laughs> we get a show. Of hands. They're not all from Jersey. Yeah, it's a that's what it usually group. is. 
Uh, can we get a show of hands also of recovered alcoholics? Anybody recovered? So if your hands ain't up, we recommend you uh, get a hold of these people whose hands are. Talk to them. They can get you through the book connected to God and get you in a way of life that is extremely much better than where you're coming from, hopefully. You don't have to wake up and detox anymore. No. Come to. <laughs> While this is an open meeting, membership in this group is limited to those who wish to recover from alcoholism and have a desire to stop drinking for good and all. Each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a potential sponsor of a new member and should clearly recognize the obligations and duties of such a responsibility. Does anybody not have a book in front of you right now? It's a big book study, and if you don't have a book, raise your hand. We'll get one out to you. Good. You did great up there, you guys. Before we begin the study of our big book last week, Two weeks ago, we reviewed Tradition 3, and then our traditionist became our chairperson, who's not here tonight because he has a family engagement. So we have a new one just jumping right in, and that will be John, and he's going to start us out on Tradition 4. So give John an excited round of applause for his first time doing this. Please refer to the abridged uh, big book, page 177, and the fatty patty, page 562. 562. Hey, my name is John. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, John. Um, tradition. You read four. the short form and then the long form and then talk. Okay, tradition four is on page 178 on the abridged. Um, it says each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Um, that's the short form. On page 179 of the abridged, it is with respect to its own affairs, each AA group should be responsible to no other authority than its own conscience. But when its plans concern the welfare of neighboring groups also, these groups ought to be consulted, and no group, regional committee, or individual should ever take any action that might greatly affect AA as a whole without conferring with the trustees of the General Service Board. On such issues, our common welfare is paramount. Bless you. Um, This is basically, I'm going to read some that uh, basically extends on Tradition 4 and uh, what it's basically about. Um, tradition four of the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous states that the freedom that the freedom in the individual groups have carries with its uh, admonition to protect the fellowship as a whole. This means that meeting formats can vary from group to group, but it also cautions against staying too far from the usual program. Um, each 12-step group has complete freedom to decide for, it, for itself the program content of its meetings and the topics that will be discussed. The group can decide if the meeting will be open or closed and when and where the meeting will be held. Each group can decide to change its meeting format and has complete authority to spend its funds as needed. The group can also decide how it wishes to begin and end its meetings. Some groups close with a prayer while others have a moment of silence. In all of these matters, each group has, has total freedom. It is entirely up to the membership of that individual group. But the second part of this tradition reminds each group that it has responsibility also to the worldwide fellowship, fellowship and other groups. By by adhering to the traditions and principles of its program, each group can ensure that it will not stray too far away from the program's basic basic tenets. The autonomy provided in Tradition 4 does not mean an individual group has has the authority to reword the steps or traditions or to recreate its own literature, nor should groups introduce, discuss, or sell outside literature at their meeting places. Other than that, groups have complete freedom to design their programs to the needs of their members, which can result in a wide variety of formats. Many a meeting has gotten away from the look and feel of its primary purpose by using non-conference approved literature, showing videos of popular self-help speakers, or allowing treatment professionals to speak at open meetings on the latest therapy techniques. One AA member described what it was like when, when encountering groups that did things differently. He says that when he first came into AA, he learned how, how it went in his little group, and he, as he went to another group in, in neighboring towns, he would think, 
They don't do their meetings right, simply because they weren't the same as the first group he went to. Today, these little things that used to bother him make him realize that they're what makes all these groups unique and different. He looks forward to the different meetings now because they're unique in their own rights. As long as the guidelines of the program are followed and the basic message is there for everyone, the autonomy of each group is one more example of why Alcoholics Anonymous works. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> in order for me and us to stay focused as we study the big book, we use the big book study guide, which is created by Krusty Cliff with a lot of help from Joe and Charlie. Uh, Krusty Cliff is of the primary purpose big book study group, which we're uh, affiliated, not affiliated with. And uh, tonight, I'm, it's my honor and my privilege to introduce our reader. He's a man that I've known for years in AA, and he's also a man that I cohabitate with. And uh, so welcome, Mike S. Yay, Outside Issues. <laughs> Hi, Mike. So after Mike reads the page, we're going to ask questions from the podium starting back at the top of the page. The answers will be one sentence unless otherwise specified. And multi-part questions are simply, a one, are simply one sentence split up with a bunch of commas, semicolons, hyphens, and other fun bits of punctuation. Basically, in English, what that means is that we're going to read the material once through and then re-dissect the information a second time through the question and answer format. Notice how the language in the questions gives us a new light in which to consider the study material. <sighs> you can never go wrong by commenting on the page, which brings us to the words of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sobriety, freedom from alcohol, through the teachings and practice of the 12th is the sole purpose of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And when we do open up for conversation, shares, once we do that, please stay to the subject covered. If you start to veer off in another way, we will have, Shay will help us direct this back to the meeting. Um, we do that because we want to stay focused. We, this is an open discussion meeting, so we want to avoid squirrel holes and rabbit holes and stuff like squirrel trees, right? Squirrel tree. Yeah, not squirrel holes. So we, uh, this is the third session in the 2019-2020 session. The past three sessions, the past two sessions, they covered the prefaces and the forewords. Um, tonight, we're going to break into the doctor's opinion. Now, if you're like me, the first time I read the forewords and the prefaces, I did walk away thinking that these guys were a little fanatical, a little, little you know, evangelical about it when you read the forewords. And we're going to find out in the doctor's opinion why that is, because I didn't really know what alcoholism was. I used to think alcoholism was based on consequences alone. And we're going to find out that it's based on on the fact that it's a physical allergy, and the doctor's opinion is going to bring everything to light. So once we read the doctor's opinion, the fact that this is a way of life and it's an urgent way of helping people, it's going to make sense. So tonight we're going to start off by reading the blue page in the workbook, which was written by Joe and Charlie and Krusty Cliff. You'll read a paragraph, and I'll read a paragraph. Sounds good. Let's go. So you guys don't have this, but we'll be jumping in the book in just a minute. The Doctor's Opinion. The Doctor's Opinion was written by Dr. William D. Silkworth, M.D., to many recovered alcoholics. This section of the big book is considered to be the most important as it describes alcoholism in terms that make sense to the real alcoholic. From this description, the alcoholic learns the exact nature of the disease of alcoholism and how hopeless his condition of mind and body seems to be. We are told that we are unable to control the amount we drink once we have taken the first few drinks. But more important, we are told why it is that we cannot manage our decision to take the first drink once we have made a firm decision, pledge, vow, promise, etc., to never drink again. He also expresses his belief based on his observations in the effectiveness of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as a method of assuring the essential entire psychic change, which he believed to be the only solution for a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. 
Dr. Silkworth was trained in neurology and lost his practice as the result of the stock market crash in 1929. He met Charlie Towns, who was in search of a physician to direct his hospital, Towns Hospital, which specialized in the treatment of alcoholics and drug addicts. Dr. Silkworth accepted the position for a stipend of $40 a week. His plans were to re-enter private practice once he could afford to do so, but the time never came. He devoted his entire career to a practice of helping alcoholics. Many thousands of alcoholics were directed to Alcoholics Anonymous because of his faith in our way of life. Without Dr. Silkworth's opinion of alcoholism, Alcoholics Anonymous would, never ha- would not have happened. It is only when we clearly understand a problem that we may be able to find a solution. Bill W. understood the hopelessness of his alcoholism, Dr. Silkworth's opinion. Dr. Bob understood the hopelessness of the alcoholism after Bill W. explained Dr. Silkworth's opinion to him. If any alcoholic really wants to stop drinking for good and all, he must fully concede to his innermost self that he has a hopeless condition of mind, body, and spirit. This is the first step in recovery, and the doctor's opinion gives us the knowledge necessary to surrender to that truth. Very simply, from this section of the book, we learn why it is that the real, the real alcoholic has a body that can never get enough alcohol and a mind that will not let the alcohol leave it alone. And we have a note here. The forward to the fourth edition advanced the page numbers for the doctor's opinion by two and will be so noted. That's right. When the first book first came out, the doctor's opinion was on page one, one of the most important pages to start with. Nowadays, we got it buried in the, in the forward. So if your sponsor does, if you're like me... I would always skip those Roman numerals and go right to the front page. Mm-hmm. So it's cool to have a sponsor that helps you. Everyone, I guess, now knows to start with the doctor's opinion. So I guess that, <laughs> that, that way sense. when you get to Bill's story, it makes sense to yeah. you. Yeah. You know, the front of the book is broken up into the problem, the solution, and the program of action. We're still in the problem where we discover what the problem is. As it said in the book, if we don't know what the problem is and we don't believe we have the problem, most people don't have a, a care what a solution is because it's not their business. Yeah. And they're certainly not going to do a program of action to the, to, the, to the quality they need to have a solution if they don't think they have a problem in the first place. So we're going to spend about 48 pages plus the doctor's opinion on the problem mixed in with some solution. So we got Mike. He's going to start us on page X. What page is that? It's X, XI in the skinny version. And XI in the big one, the doctor's opinion. Sorry. You got it. The doctor's opinion. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. To whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type who 
type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, M.D. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered from alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we all have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. <clears throat> but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So we're going to pause there. We're going to start our questions <clears throat> on the very first page of the doctor's opinion. We got Chris is going to run around with the microphone. Once again, if you don't want your voice recorded and put out on the Internet, just pass the microphone to the person next to you. The way this works, I'm going to read a question, and the answer is actually just reading one of the sentences <coughs> we just read. We do this so we got a better understanding of what we've just been through. So doctor's opinion. First question, what do we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe about this book? We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. What is the source of the convincing testimony in this book? Convincing tes testimony must surely come from uh, medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. Who gave Alcoholics Anonymous his opinion of alcoholism? What was his position? A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nat nationally Prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. You know, if you think about it, the forwards, the preface, is written by a bunch of alcoholics, you know, not the most reputable people on earth. So in order for this book to get some credibility, you know, we needed to get a doctor in there right away to tell us and just, you know, and to tell us exactly what we're going with and, you know, give us some credit, credibility to the world. Next paragraph. What is Dr. Silkworth's specialty? To whom it may concern. I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. Next paragraph. How did Dr. Silkworth describe the patient Bill W. he attended in 1934? In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. What happened during Bill's third course of treatment? 
In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of Bill's recovery, what did he try to impress upon other alcoholics? As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, oppressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. His work was the basis for what? This has become the basis of rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. How many did Dr. Silkworth say had recovered by 1939? This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. Cool. Next paragraph. How did Dr. Silkworth know from his personal... How many did Dr. Dr. Silkworth know from his personal experience? I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods methods had failed completely. Comment. In the original draft of the big book, Dr. Silkworth said, I personally know a 30 of these cases who were the type with whom other methods had failed completely. He was willing to stake his reputation on these 30 hopeless cases that he saw recover as Bill did in Towns Hospital. The other 60 recovered alcoholics were in the Akron or Cleveland areas. Next paragraph. Why do these facts seem to be extreme medical importance? These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibility of rapid growth uh, inherent to, in this group. They, uh, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. Did Dr. Silkworth believe this program would work for many others? These men may have, well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. And the next paragraph. What did the doctor, what did, oh, okay. Um, oh, did Dr. Silkworth have complete confidence in the recovered alcoholics? You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Great. And this next paragraph, did Dr. Silkworth, um, what did the authors of this book request of Dr. Silkworth? The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In Dr. Silkworth's enlarged statement, what fact does he confirm that suffering alcoholics must believe? In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite, quite as abnormal as his mind. What did not satisfy us? It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life that we were in full flight from reality or we or were outright mental defectives. Was there any truth to them? These things were true to some extent. In fact, to the considerable extent with some of us. Of what are we sure? But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. What must be included to make the picture of alcoholism a complete one? In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Next paragraph. Which part of the doctor's theory is of interest to alcoholics? Talking to the fuzzy part. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. Is our opinion considered valuable? Our Our opinion is, our opinion as to its soundless may, of course, mean little. Good. Um, as ex-problem drinkers, what was the th- what of his theory interests us? But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. 
What does it do for us? It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Cool. Uh, we got one more paragraph, it looks like. Do we favor hospitalization for the still sick alcoholics in phenomenon? Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. What is often necessary before we can begin to work on a person? More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer, the doctor writes. Great. So this is open for comments, questions, experience that you have on this. Just pop up your hand and we'll get to, you know. For the first time, this book has given a detailed medical explanation of alcoholism. Up to this point, there was no mass-produced information going out to the public in general. Remember, this book was written in such a way that it was for me, the alcoholic, to read and relate to, but at the same time was written in such a way that doctors and therapists and you know, everyone can learn something from this. He's trying to change the perception that alcoholism is just behavioral-based, that there's this physical component that's combined with it. And so that's what we're going to get out of this next couple of pages. Hi. Recovered alcoholic, Peter. Hi, hey, Peter. Peter. Could you hold it closer to your face, please? Yes. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that physical aspect of this disease. Um, you know, one of the aspects is what, what makes a true alcoholic, you know, is having that allergenic response to alcohol and other moon monitoring substances, alcohol and drug addiction. It says over here in doctor's opinion, he was a doctor specializing in that. And he saw that these people, you know, um, physically were reacting to this stuff differently than other people. You know, that some people were able to go into his hospital, woke out after a couple of days and resume their lives and never come back and not have a problem. Unlike myself, I kept coming back and kept coming back and kept coming back. You know, um, somehow um, I was able to grasp the fact that indeed, you know, I am physically and mentally different than others. Um, Tough pill to, to swallow, especially for some people um, who have had um, very successful lives, you know, um, marriages and, 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 and so on and so forth, business and, and so on. You know, these are uh, a lot of people like that are very strongly ego driven and so on um, and like myself too, you know, I was very ego driven and thought that, you know, I was, I had this invincibility, you know, that, um, because I belong to this certain crowd that, you know, not me, you know, that was like beneath me, but, and it took many years for me to become convinced of this physical aspect, my differentness to, uh, to others, the non-alcoholic. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. We've got sure. a hand over here that's going to pop up real quick, too. Barry's on the other side of the house. Hi, recovered alcoholic. My name is Barry. Hi, Barry. And, uh, you know, I was very grateful when my sponsor sat me down early in the process of going through this book and showed me and explained to me that my body, as a true alcoholic, does not break alcohol down. You know, that made sense to me. However, it's, it's, not, it's not a cop-out. It's not an excuse. You know, the, the acetone level remaining high creates that phenomenon of craving, all right? That's one thing. 
that's not an excuse to go out there and continue to act like a derelict. You know, the entire process of working through these steps is what makes me a contributing member, you know, to society, hopefully, and, and you know, a decent man. But uh, it does explain that no alcohol in any quantity can enter my body. Otherwise, it's going to set it off, you know, and stop cooking with it, you know, no beer instead of liquor, you know, it just does not equate to a functioning person when it enters my body and that made a lot of sense to me and you know that's it's nice to have out in the forefront um but working the steps and working through the steps and having the spiritual uh, experience and connection with god is what is all about and that's what's gonna you know allow my virtues to outshine my character defects hopefully so thank you Thanks. Thanks for sharing. You know, if I refer back to what Joe and Charlie told us, very simply from this section of the book, we learn why it is that the real alcoholic has a body that can never get enough alcohol and a mind that will not let the alcoholic leave it alone. That's our two basic problems. If I did not suffer from the phenomenon of craving, I would be just a normal, miserable American. You know, I'd have a crummy job, a crummy, crummy, crummy life, and I'd go home and have one or two, three drinks and, you know, and be blasé and go to sleep and show up to work. I had a crummy life. I had a crummy, you know, it was, and I would go home and I would go to Bistro Las Olas, right? Two Knob Creeks, some filet mignons, some, some Asian beans, you know, run to the bathroom for a couple of bumps for chattiness. And my intention was to be home by 9.30 that night so I could get up in the morning and go to work. Well, I would get, I would come up at 9.30, but usually on Wednesday, two or three days later, because I'm convinced, even though I'm lying to myself, you know, my Brian because we're going to talk about phenomenal craving, tells me it's going to be okay. You can, you'll be fine tonight. It's an important meeting. You know? But once that phenomenon is triggered, I have absolutely no control how much I'm going to have. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's like going down a hill in a, in a, in a little go-kart. Bobsled. A bobsled, yeah, with snow helps really fast, mm -hmm. you know. We got Kelly over here to save me. It Come on, is. Kelly. I don't know if I can do that. I'll try. Talking the fuzzy part, though. <laughs> fuzzy. Oh. Hi. I'm a recovered alcoholic named Kelly. Hey, hey Kelly. Kelly. Um, so this theory that we have an allergy to alcohol. Before I was introduced to the program, you know, I had tried all the many different methods of controlling my drinking. Tried, you know, beer, wine, all kinds of stuff. I would try to measure my shots, measure my drinks. I tried all sorts of different ways, but at the end of the day, once I started drinking, all bets were off, and I didn't have any exposure whatsoever to Alcoholics Anonymous. And after several, several, several um, incidents of insane, absurd behavior, I had turned and looked at my then better half, and I said, I think I'm allergic to alcohol. I remember that very distinctly because I was not reacting the same way as the rest of my friends were. Everybody else could drink and control their drinking or drink as much as I was, at least it seemed like they were, and stop or, you know, they, they didn't do the things that I was doing. And since you brought up the acetone, I went to, I've gone to the big book study every year with Pat and Brian, and they gave this explanation how our body does not break down the alcohol. A normal person when alcohol enters the body, it turns to acetone for a brief second and is then converted. And in the alcoholic, it stays acetone in our body for a much longer time. And we, the craving is just, it's set off. And we're, we crave that which is killing us. Like it says in the book, you know, our mind will take us back to that which is killing us. We crave the poison once we put it in our body. 
It's, it's a fatal disease. It's crazy. You know, um, you have a friend who might be allergic to peanuts. They eat peanuts. The body reacts by going into esophageal failure. You know, I have a friend, Pat Rogue, Pat Ro- Rogaine, Steen, <laughs> that, uh, that talks about that. You know, he has a brother that eats bananas and his lips puff up, you know. So for fun, he used to sneak bananas into his brother's cereal and stuff like that. It's not like he can tell his lip, okay, deflate. You know, you, you, you eat strawberries and you get the hives, you know, you can't like say hives, you know, it's like it's for some reason, the acetone in our brain, it triggers this reptilian part of the brain that just sparks this. I need more mm. you know, scientifically. We're not going to go into that. It's, it's just one of the scientific facts that when we do get that, it just wants more. And the more we have, the more it craves at the end of the night. Are you craving more booze than when you first start? How many people near the end of the night start looking at that bottle behind the bar and trying to figure out how they're going to get that out of the bar without getting caught because you don't have any at home, right? Or you go to the, the God, live, for heaven's sake, you live in the Midwest and they stop selling beer after 10 o'clock in a lot of places, you know? If we look at the first page, it tackles some of the three most important things of alcoholism, about alcoholism to the general public and to me at least. It, it gives us the qualifications of Dr. Silkworth as somebody who we can believe cool <laughs> the little horn it's <laughs> like a clown, clown you know horn. and and yeah. then the second thing it goes in it, it it talks about the problem heavy hard drinker very subtly and it talks about the real alcoholic you know you had brought that up there's people that look like us they act like us but they go into dr silky's and they get really they get nutritional they get some therapy they may do some vision boards they may have some group therapy and maybe have some equine therapy and and they get their life problems back together and they're released to the normal public and they continue to drink like normal people you do that for us and we start drinking and we immediately kick in the phenomenon of craving and then it also tells us about what the solution is in the course of Bill's third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning the possible means of recovery. And if I go back to where that came from, this is referring to Bill and his experience with the Oxford group. Though Bill could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford group, and this is the key of our solution, he was convinced of the need for moral inventory, confession of personality defects, restitution to those harmed, helpfulness to others, and the necessity of belief and independence upon God. And for them, that would be like making the four absolutes as the guardrails to life, to, to be you know, as good of a person as we can be. This has become the basis of the rapidly growing fellowship. What has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship? As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conception to other alcoholics, impressing upon them they must do likewise with still others. So we find out that we have a doctor who knows what he's talking about. He explains what alcoholism. He starts to point out the difference between the real alcoholics and us. And then they give us the solution. Now, the cool thing about this, it goes into this. I personally know scores of cases who are the type of whom others' methods have failed completely. Who's been into re- multiple, multiple, multiple rehabs but never did the solution found in the books of Alcoholics Anonymous and, like, were surprised that you didn't stay sober? <laughs> because rehabs do not treat alcoholism. It treats the surrounding parts of alcoholism. It treats the, the behaviorals, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the program. That's where we get the, the, the treatment for alcoholism. Now, Bill, or Dr. Bob... He had this grand idea. These facts appear to be extreme medical importance because of extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. So if me and Shaw get sobered through the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and next week we go out and we start working with two guys, right? 
And then a week later, those two guys plus us are working with two more guys. You see how the numbers are multiplying? Dr. Silkworth looks at this fact. If you guys, you guys are going to beat this thing in like a couple of years because you're all going to get sober and help each other. Unfortunately, you didn't understand human nature that a bunch of us are going to get sober and not bother to help each other, which is sort of a <laughs> sad thing about us. But the idea is that each of us got sober and helped other people. We could really get a foot up on this, this alcoholism problem if we stuck around and worked with others. That's what Dr. Silkworth saw. And there's this, uh, there's this idea in kind of self-help therapy, and some of my family members have, have brought this up to me. Like, you know, it's been said now that everybody that's an addict or an alcoholic actually suffers from uh, repressed childhood trauma of some sort. And that's the idea, right? And, and this is kind of what we're talking about on this page. Like, it didn't satisfy me to be told that I couldn't control my drinking because I was maladjusted to life, right? I grew up with a single mother. I was in therapy from the time I was in middle school because of behavior problems, right? But that's not why I got thirstier the more I drank. At the end of the night, I wanted the last drink, which was usually before I passed out or got arrested, uh, more than I wanted the second or third drink, right? That doesn't satisfy me. Or, or I'm in full flight from reality. I'm just going through a bad divorce. I'm just going through a bad breakup or my job is tough. That doesn't satisfy me as an explanation. What it says is, I'm, oh, I'm in full flight from reality. I'm trying to run from everything. Well, kind of. You know, the therapy that I was in for years didn't really address the issue. And that's talking about this. Any picture of the alcoholic that leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. The physical factor is what? The phenomenon of craving. I can't control myself once I start to drink. I get thirsty. I get really thirsty. And, uh, yeah. What, uh... <laughs> So who got drunk when you had a really good girlfriend or boyfriend? Who got drunk when you had a lousy boy boyfriend or girlfriend? Who got drunk when you had a good job? Who had, got drunk when you had a bad job? No job, right? We got drunk because we wanted to get drunk. Listen, the fact that my father died when I was eight years old didn't make me an alcoholic. It gave me a reason to drink. But if I never, you know, if I, st I was going to drink no matter what because I suffered from alcoholism. My body metabolized alcohol differently from age, from age 12, I was drinking alcoholically. When I drank after uh, eight beers, phenomenal craving would kick in and I would end up finishing that 12-pack and moving on to the next 12-pack. I didn't suffer from mental obsession, though. I could get up and go to school in a week. But as soon as I overdrank, then I would trigger the phenomenon of craving. My mental obsession comes a little bit longer down the road. The more times you trigger, the more times you trigger the phenomenon of craving, it slowly does something to your brain, which eventually will result in the mental obsession. So, and can, now, can we have different levels, different parts of that three-part illness? So, for example, could I be like somebody that doesn't suffer from the mental obsession but is a potential alcoholic, like me in college, me at 17 when I was... Uh, drinking and I couldn't control it and I would think all right rum is my problem I can't drink rum I'm not drinking rum anymore because I drink I just do a shot contest that's not a drinking game by the way anybody ever do a shot contest where you just drink just drink as many shots as you can and then I was like okay I get very sick I can't drink rum and then the next week it's a different type of liquor it's vodka now I, and then I've gone through by the end of the month I've gone through every type of liquor that there is and I can't drink any of them right but now I'm only suffering from but then I can stop for five or six months on my own willpower without a spiritual solution, that's just the physical allergy, right? That's, that's not into the part of the disease where I can't even differentiate the true from the false. I tell myself I'm not going to drink one day on Tuesday, and then Tuesday evening I'm getting drunk. So it's a, it's a progression. So we've covered pretty much the physical allergy in this part of the doctor's opinion. You know, it's a threefold disease, a spiritual malady, which is disconnected from God, 
The second part is the mental obsession with the insanity, the first drink. Knowing that every time I go out to drink, I never can drink how much I plan to drink. And then the third part, the physical allergy. Of all those three parts, which one can you take away and not be alcoholic? The if physical. you one piece apart, A, B, or C, which one do you take away and you would no longer be alcoholic? Physical allergy. You might have a mental obsession to get drunk every night because have you seen my wife? <laughs> you know? Have my, my father is not alcoholic. When he was working the stock market back in the 70s, after a hard day, he'd come home, he'd pull up the car in the driveway, he'd open the door, he'd run into the house, he'd pet the dog, kiss the wife, and run right to the kitchen, open up his little box and pull down his gin and his culinary things and mix his drinks, you know, and pull out his frozen crystal glass and pour his martini in there, grab his New York Times and go into the family den and sit in his chair and open it up and put his drink down, you know, and start reading a little bit. And he reads over there and stirs a little bit, takes a little sip. Very rarely did he ever finish those drinks. If he came home and I was getting beat up in the front yard by my older brother, John, which happened a lot, and he had to break us up, and then the fight, the whole house would just explode, and he was not able to get that drink. He was a cranky guy that night because he did not have his drink. He had this habit slash, I don't call it really obsession, but he needed that. Like If we're going out to dinner and, and the restaurant didn't have, a, didn't have a beer or wine, he would want to go to a different place. My mom didn't care. you know. He's, but once he never had more than one or two drinks. But he had this reason to drink. It, it, it fixed his crummy day. It made life easier for him. Take away the physical allergy and we're just normal people. Now, the physical allergy, if we don't drink, is great. But we got that mental obsession that lies to us. Who's, who's good at dope fiending people? Come on, raise your hand. Let's dope fiend her. Raise your hand. <laughs> you dope fiend ourselves the best. You know, I was just talking about this the other day. I'm convinced that this is the truth. But I've convinced, but I've just dope fiended myself into except believing a lie. I'm going to have two knob creeks and a flame in yon. Right. And Never this is all happens. step one stuff, too. When we talk about what it means to be powerless over alcohol and for my life to become unmanageable. I can't control the amount of drinking when I start drinking and I can't stop picking up the, from picking up the first drink. It's a hopeless condition, right? To really understand that and fully concede that to my innermost self. It's a terrifying realization. Like, it's not like, yeah, yeah, yeah I just... Uh, I crave when I drink. Well, it's like, no, like this is killing me. I, got, I need a spiritual solution. I need a complete transformation in my attitudes and motivations in, in life. And that can only be brought about with, with God and with the 12 steps. Though we work out our solution on a spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's still jittery or profound. Who's done a 12-step call? Got the drunk in the back seat. You're telling them how great AA is going to be and how fun it's going to be. And the, the girls are really nice and you're going to love it and, and you just think you've just changed that person's life, right? He's in there going ah, 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 you know, and you've just through AA love at him, right? And he's not listening to anything we're saying. He's just hoping you stop and get him some more four locos so he can pass the test, you know? You don't start booking with people when they're in front you know, Bill W., right? He's going to the Oxford group, but he kept showing up to the Oxford group drunk and he goes up, he pull, goes up the roll and hazard and says, you know, the other night I actually came home and I gave Lois money back for the first time. Something's happening, but, but I keep staying drunk. And Roland Hazard says, oh, yeah, that's right. We're going to talk to you about that. <laughs> this will not work if you're drunk. you got to get sober. Well, you got to get detoxed, get out of the phenomenon of craving for this to work. And that's when Roland Hazard arranged for Bill W. to go back into Doc Tom's hospital. Ebby Thatcher came and visited him, but he didn't start talking the Oxford group stuff to him until he had been fully detoxed and he was no longer mocus or befogged. 
You, you know, it, when the phenomenon of craving is in process, we have one thing and one purpose, one reason to live, and that's to have more. You cannot talk an alcoholic sober in phenomenon of craving. Now, once they're in phenomenon of craving, we can handle that whole mental obsession thing with, you know, keeping them distracted and busy and stuff like that. But uh, once, if they're in phenomenon of craving, just, just get them to detox if possible. Anybody else want to share before we jump into another part? Oh, hi. I am just an alcoholic. I am when um, I guess this is this chapter is encouraging and maybe a little discouraging for a couple different reasons. But what was shared earlier about how like um, especially with therapy, it's like, oh, well, you know, if you suffer from alcoholism or addiction, you must have had childhood trauma. Right. And I and I can identify with being younger and you know you do drugs and your parents are like um what's going on like is it the add is it the ocd is it like you know diagnosing me at infinitum um like what is wrong with you and it's like you read this and it's like oh okay well this is what i have um i am physically allergic to alcohol that's why when i drink like i I either pass out or you know go do something crazy like i can never just drink one or two um but what's hard, that's great. That's the good news. But what's difficult for me is, yes, the physical allergy is what makes me a real alcoholic. But if I only had the physical allergy, then the only thing that I would have to do is be removed from, from alcohol and, and drugs, right? Because if I don't crave it, then I'm not going to do it. But then you have, oh, great, the insidiousness of the mental obsession. Like I cannot, once removed from it, I cannot stop thinking about it. And then you, the, and then the other beast, which is the spiritual malady or the disconnect from God. And it's, um, without a drink. Well, well, when you take away the medicine, when you take away the drinks and the drugs, I am so, um, irritable and restless and discontent. Um, I, I will literally do anything, um, to, to get out of that state. And we learn, and you learn doing doing the steps and, and working with sponsees and sponsors that there's only two things that'll get me out of that, and it's doing the steps and working with others, which is the solution, this um, the psychic change, or it's drinking and drugging, right? Mm. Which will kill me. So, so I, you mean I can't stay sober on meetings and softball? I don't think so. Oh. It helps if you got a program of action and gives you a fun life to live with that in itself. In this statement, he confirms that we who suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So I'm going to these meetings, and I'm hearing everybody with these traumatic childhood issues or these traumatic life issues. And, and, and I'm trying to think, well, I have none of that stuff going on in my life. I, I have a pretty good life. My family life was good. My, 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 my everything else is going on. And, and, but I did know that when I snuck out on a Friday night for just two and a couple bumps that I couldn't stop. And this book... See, I got sober in 1984 by White Light Experience in Hazleton. And, and we never really got into, I never really got into what alcoholism was because I was labeled alcoholic and drug addict. Before, you know, my first day, they took, an, they took that intake and said, oh, my God, you're an addict, alcoholic, and a few other things they threw in there, too, to scare me. And um, <laughs> I didn't fully understand what alcoholism was. Fifteen years in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I never really comprehended what was in the doctor's opinion. We just sort of went through it. And when I came back in 2004 and finally got sober in 2006, and I sat down with my sponsor, who's the first person ever to sit down and read the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had sponsors that told me to go read 
the doctor's opinion or, and I would lie and say, I read it. And they'd say, well, what'd you get out of it? And I said, we're sick and we need help, which is, you know, and they would say, okay, great. Let's go, go read Bill's story. Um, <laughs> this is a guy who actually sat down and I read, and I'm reading this stuff and we get to this part. It did not satisfy us totally. We could not control our drinking just because we're maladjusted. Like, because I wasn't now I'm drunk and I do some crazy diddly do stuff, but my baseline was I, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty good drunk. You know, I'm paying the bills and I'm getting through the day. That we're full flight from reality and we're outright mental defects. That just wasn't me, you know, which allowed me to think that I could drink like other people. Because, you know, I had some consequences, but there, was, there wasn't this crazy mentalness going on. And then he gave me the facts. But we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. And our belief, any picture of the alcohol that leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. I don't think I'd ever heard that before. Because I always thought alcoholism was purely behavioral. The doctor's theory that have an allergy to alcohol interests us. Allergy, an abnormal reaction to anything. People who are allergic to peanuts, are they shameful of the fact they're allergic to peanuts? No, it's, just, it's a natural thing of life. My, when I was told that when I drink alcohol, it, it's processed differently and I react differently, the lights went on. And we're reading this doctor's opinion. I look over to my sponsor and I said, you know something, I'm an alcoholic. And he looked at me like I was from the Mars. And it's like, seriously, <laughs> this is the first time that I truly believed to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. I always thought that I was mm, alcoholic-ish or had some issues, but I could never understand it. This made sense to me because mm. alcoholism is not based on consequences. It's not based on having a childhood trauma or not. Mm -hmm. It's not having bipolar or some other thing that's going on. My body processes it differently. I have a different reaction. The more I drink, the more I need, the more I need, the more I drink. Hence, I just can't stop once I start drinking. And that finally made sense to me. And when I realized that I'm drinking not because I want to, not because I've earned a weekend away, but because I have no choice in it. In other words, I was alcohol's bitch. That's when I really wanted to stop. And that's when they presented me with the program found in the book. Mm. And you know, I haven't had a drink since then because I knew what I was fighting before I sort of knew. But if I didn't know what the problem was, I didn't really bother understanding the solution. I certainly wasn't going to do the program. So, Yeah. And it's going to say on the next page that this, yeah, through 90 and 90. 90 and 90 in conjunction with yeah. reading the book with your sponsor. Seeking God, excellent stuff by itself. Probably not a good idea. Yeah, I think you like if you really understand this thing, you might accidentally do ninety and ninety just because you're trying to find the solution. You know, you're trying to get out there and help somebody. But yeah, yeah. and uh, and on the next page, it's going to say the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. It explains many things for which we can't otherwise account, right? Because we, he says he's known many men that worked for months on a business venture that was going to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. And then a day or so prior, they took a drink, and then the phenomenon of craving became paramount, more important than everything, and the important appointment was not met. So it's like things are going good, right, And in my life, and I mess it all up just because I want to drink more, and I can't control it. Why? Because of trauma? No, because of allergy, right? Yeah. So. Anybody else got something to share on this? Pop your hands up right now because we're going to jump in. We're going to get a few more paragraphs and wrap it up. Good. Mike, why don't you put your mic in front of your mouth? <clears throat> Thanks. So we're going back to the book, uh, the, the doctor writes. By the way, when the book first came out, Dr. Silkwood put this little little letter to us, and he's like, yeah, can you guys send a letter back to him, asking him to get a little bit more information uh, so that it could be more useful. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me, 
seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which has covered which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we found, the cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The usefulness of these... The unselfishness. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in the alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So we're going to stop there. We're going to start answering, asking questions from the top of that page where the doctor writes. Let me try and find that. Who should be interested in what is contained in this book? The subject presented in this book seems to, be, seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. Next paragraph, two-part question. Looks like the whole paragraph, perhaps. What was Dr. Silkworth's position, and B, what hospital, and what hospital special, and his hospital specialized in what? I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. Next paragraph. What did Dr. Silkworth say that doctors believed to be important to alcoholics? There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. Uh, This is one of those questions to think about. Did he believe that the medical profession had the ability to really help alcoholics? Your observations from the preceding two sentences. Um, Next paragraph. What did Dr. Silkworth say the doctors believed to be of importance? We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. With everything the medical profession had going for them, what were the doctors not equipped to do? What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. What is it that one of the leading contributors, Bill W., of his book wanted to do with the idea he had acquired? 
Many years ago, of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in the hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. How did he feel about the cases he reviewed after Bill W.? Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here and with some misgiving. We consented. Good. Now that question again. I did that. Did I do wrong? How did he feel about the cases he reviewed after Bill W. did his thing? I'm confused. The cases we have. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. How did Dr. Silkworth view recovered alcoholics? The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive, and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. What do alcoholics believe? They believe themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Comment. On this page, Dr. Silkworth mentions moral psychology followed by the power of good and finally power. He recognized our need for a higher power and expressed his acceptance of the fact of the foregoing fashion. Next paragraph. Did Dr. Silkworth believe hospitalization for the sick alcoholic is appropriate? Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So this little part's open for for sharing conversation experience. Anybody can share if you like. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Ryan. Ryan. Um, one of one of my favorite parts of this of this section is uh, when he says uh, later he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients. Here and with some misgiving, we consented. Um, I like to when I'm reading this with someone, we play like a little game of like imagination, and we imagine if like this was in a different scenario. And this was like a mental institution, right? And you have Dr. Silkworth, who this was his life's work of like trying to treat alcoholics. Um, he says he, he's labored long and warily in this field for many years, right? Um, and then a patient comes up to him and is basically like, you know, can I, can I lead the group today? And this is one of those moments I feel like where God showed up, you know, because any other doctor would be like, uh, no, you know, <laughs> like... Um, and especially like I, when I think of a doctor, I think of someone having like one of those God complexes anyway, like, oh, I can fix it, you know, but Dr. Silkworth, he basically knew that nothing that he was doing was working. So why not? You know? And, um, you know, if that didn't happen, we wouldn't have what we have today. Uh, so thanks for letting me share. Thanks. And this is another one of those that's kind of a good test. If I'm reading this with the sponsee, like, does my recovery look like this? Does my life look like this? The unselfishness of me and, and my friends in AA is that, uh, is there an, an unselfishness of a, among us? Is there an absence of a profit motive? Is there a community spirit that would be inspiring to anyone? And if not, then, then why not, right? Because that's, that's where we're coming. Yeah, we got Peter. Alcoholic recovered Peter again. Hello. Hey, Peter. I like this paragraph. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. Um, with our ultra-modern standards of, of our scientific approach to everything, we were perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside the synthetic knowledge, our synthetic knowledge. Um, and I believe what they're implying by moral psychology is like spiritual awakening, you know, and 
how, you know, how you get like um, an alcoholic from A to B, like from that state of hopelessness to a place of hope, you know, and apparently, um, and it's been my experience. I know, you know, that a lot of the doctors and therapists that tried to help me and poured out their, their energies and their kindnesses and their time to me, you know, just didn't like get me over that. I'm sure it was a part of like, um, my, my spiritual awakening, but, um, it wasn't until I was finally able to become open to this message, um, covered so masterly in this book that, um, I've been able to find a spiritual solution to my problem, which is offered here in the first 164 pages makes sense to me today, especially with that um, part of the physical allergy. Thank you. Thanks. You Thanks know, I was sure. I've, in the book. It mentions moral psychology a couple times. And I asked my sponsor once, you know, what is this moral psychology stuff? And he said, uh, you've been in rehab. I say, yeah. He said, did you do a, a financial drug history? I say, yeah. Did you do an actual drug history? Yeah. Did you have a family crisis history? Yeah. Did you guys sit around and, and talk about your traumas? And he says, yeah. Do you have group groups you're holding each other accountable? I go, yeah. He says, that's moral. Mm. See, for a problem-heavy hard drinker and for anyone, you know, to be drinking and living this life, we're not paying attention to the damage that we're, that, that we're creating behind us, you know? We're just going full steam ahead. So for a problem-heavy hard drinker and for us to be stopped in a rehab facility and to be forced to look back at the life we're living because the life I was living, I thought was pretty darn nice. Mm. And then to see the damage, truthfully honest. You know, back then, moral psychology also referred as truthful and honest. For me to stop and look what my life really looks like, that in itself should cause me to never pick up another drink again, except I'm an alcoholic. And all that stuff makes me feel really bad about it. And as soon as I get out of the rehab, I feel so bad about it, I need to have a drink. <laughs> a problem-heavy hard drinker, a PWHD, they're going to look at that stuff. And they're going to have a good reason for a, for a, for a, for a physical or a behavioral change to, to kick in. We don't have behavioral changes like that because ours is chemical-based. Mental obsession, physical, chemical, brain rewiring, neuro, neuro stuff. For a problem heavy hard drinker to see what their life is actual life and with some good therapy and some good community support and some good excitement and sober softball and stuff like that. They may never drink again. But for us, that stuff is just like, oh, my God, that's horrible. I can't believe that. Next thing you know, we have a reason to drink once we get out again. And that's, so. uh, that's grace, too. That's a relief for me because it's like I read a heck of an impact letter that my mom wrote for me in treatment. It was an impact letter about the ways that my drinking and drug use had affected her. And it's like that didn't keep me – that in and of itself didn't keep me sober, right? But it's like if I would have stayed sober – does that mean I love my mom more? Because I really love my mom a lot, you know. But no, I'm an alcoholic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's a relief more that, you know, the moral psychology isn't the solution to alcoholism. Like we have these 12 steps. We have these, this path to a spiritual awakening. You know, just like the problem every hard drinker, I needed to see the damage I was causing. I needed to become honest with what my life really looked like. But then I needed some extra. I needed the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that's why when you get out of rehab, they say, oh, by the way, go to them 12-step programs and do that stuff, too, you know. But for me, you know, I, I had to get the full, full book of Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober to be able to live like that. I needed that. My, my goodbye letter to cocaine and tequila, you know, that was really moving and stuff. 
I think I went out drinking the next night in IOP because of that, you know. Didn't stop my drinking. So we're going to start wrapping up now. If you guys have anything, any questions, anything you feel like sharing, grab somebody after the meeting. Have a little fellowship afterwards. Don't go running out of here. The place isn't on fire. Have some, have some talks with each other. Let's make this a nice night tonight. And Thank can you, we... Mike, for sharing, by the way. You did a very good job of reading. <laughs> the Honorable Mike Shaw. <laughs> This is a vision from you from the book Alcoholics Anonymous. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your house is in order. But you obviously can't transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. It is the practice of the Four Light of Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group for group member sponsors to introduce their sponsees by presenting them with a sponsorship medallion. So if you've recently started working with somebody, reading with somebody, you want to reintroduce them or introduce them to the family of Alcoholics Anonymous, this is the time. we got a little sponsorship medallion. Anyone? If you're a member of Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous. Any a, anybody in AA? Recovered alcoholic named Kelly. Hi. Megan, so Megan I've been working with for a few weeks. We have read the preface. Megan, oh my God. It's been a long day. Brittany. (laughs) I'm sorry, Brittany. So we have read everything from the preface to the forewords to the doctor's opinion to Bill's story. And she keeps coming back and she wants to do this work and I love watching her eyes light up. And she listens and she wants a solution. So... Come get your, come get your, Brittany, Brittany, and she became a member of this group. Uh, I'm a recovery alcoholic. My name is Mike Chase. Hey, Mike Chase. Um, I bumped into this guy a couple of weeks ago. We started talking. Um, I've worked with him in the past, and I'm going to continue working with him to the day I die. I want to reintroduce you guys to Ronnie coming back. I read the forward, the doctor's opinion this week, so welcome back. Love you. Is anyone celebrating a year or more of sobriety and would like a medallion? Okay, keep uh, come back next week and pick up your one year or two. If you'd like to become a member of this group, please join us after the meeting to fill out a membership card. First and most of all, does anyone need a sponsor? Raise your hand. And if you're too shy, come up to us. We'll give you some numbers to introduce you to. Everybody's got a sponsor. Good. Can all home group members raise your hands and keep them up? Cool. We're going to tear the meeting down after the uh, meeting, so stick around and help that. By the way, if you smoke a vape, you're allowed to go out on the balcony and vape and enjoy the beautiful view, and then come back in and help tear down the room. (laughs) If you smoke cigarettes, you have to go outside and buy the dumpster. (laughs) Sorry. And uh, Thursday is our Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. We got Pat R. coming back. He's in the midst of a Step Series. He's just an incredible he's on speaker. Three-ish? I think he's three-ish. Yeah, yeah the third session. So. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Uh, please wait till you're 75 feet away to the doors to vape or smoke by the dumpsters. Um, let's close now with the Lord's Prayer. Everybody, just sort of chill out a little bit. <sighs> Take a moment to figure out what can you do to help another alcoholic. Who's going to bring him some shame to grace? Our Father. Father, 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 Father,
is when you Everywhere I go, 
Michael Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Broken man, I travel far and wide. 
plugging my guitar And I play my songs And people sing along And stomp their feet and raise their arms And here in this moment that we share Nothing could compare Ten years old that song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. <laughs> 